Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Walk to End Alzheimer's, taking the first step to create a world without Alzheimer's. Saturday morning, September 21st at Merlin Olson Central Park. Registration details at act.alz.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk today about legend tripping. It's where people travel to a site where a legend is thought to have taken place. Examples, Weeping Woman Memorial at Logan Cemetery, Haunted Slaughterhouse, San Antonio Ghost Tracks. Legend tripping is a common informal practice depicted in epic stories, novels, and film throughout both contemporary and historical vernacular culture. And there's a collection out from Utah State University Press, Legend Tripping, a contemporary legend casebook, in which contributors show how legend trips can express humanity's interest in the frontier between life and death and the fascination with the possibility of personal contact with supernatural or spiritual. We have with us the editors. On the telephone, Elizabeth Tucker, Distinguished Service Professor in the English Department at Binghamton University, SUNY, where she teaches folklore, children's folklore, folklore of supernatural, folklore of and mass media, and Native American folklore and literature. Elizabeth Tucker, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. With us in studio is Lynn McNeil, Assistant Professor of English and uh, Folklore Program at Utah State University, co-founder of Digital Folklore Project, author of Folklore Rules, co-editor of Slenderman is Coming. Research interests include legend, belief, fandom, and uh, digital folklore. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, both of you, I love the pictures of, of the, the young Elizabeth and young <laughs> Lynn. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's a good place to start. What, uh, so Elizabeth Tucker, uh, from, from your youth... Um, did you do legend tripping? My first legend trip was in the mountains of Colorado when I went on a camping weekend with my church youth group, and we were supposed to be in bed late at night, but we all sneaked down to a graveyard, and one of the boys stole a tombstone and talked about the ghost of the person who was buried in that grave. Mm, yeah, cool. scary. Very exciting. What, uh, what was your feeling there? You did excitement? Fear? Both. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that we were going to get punished by the counselors and our parents, but they didn't seem to mind too much. I think they understood that this was part of being out in the woods with a group of young people. Yeah. Lynn McNeil, what about you? Yeah, I think it's interesting the role that, that youth organizations play in some of these things. I know on Girl Scout campouts and sleepovers, more than I remember going out into the world to seek out these experiences. I remember the more stationary forms of legend tripping, things like um, playing hypnosis games and holding seances. And I'm sure many people remember playing light as a feather, stiff as a board, or going into the bathroom and chanting Bloody Mary in front of the mirror and all that sort of stuff. I was just fascinated by those things when I was young. So did anything ever happen? Did What was, I guess, first question is why? A lot of young people do this. Why? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the question that, that mm. pretty much every chapter in our, our book is setting out to answer is why do we do this? And I think in a very general sense, and Libby, you can chime in here, there's a, there's a testing of the boundaries of possibility as people enter into adolescence and adulthood. And certainly, as the book illustrates, this is not limited to teenage or adolescent behaviors, but that certainly is a key time where legend tripping kicks in. You have more freedom of movement, later curfews, a chance to explore the world a little bit more, and you find these ways to test out 
possibilities. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Tucker, yeah, your answer to this, what, uh, what's the reason? I guess it's a lot of adolescents, adults too, but, but adolescents, teenagers. Te- yes, well, I would totally agree with Lynn on that one. I think that particularly in adolescence and late adolescence, which would include the college years for many students, there's a hunger to learn about the nature of the world and confronting the numinous that spiritual, mysterious power that many legend trips involve is very important to young people. It also can be very important to older people, and I've done some study of middle-aged adults going to spiritualist summer camps and trying to contact spirits of the dead. I think that area should be studied more. There's a lot we can learn about what happens then. Uh, In the book, in fact, the opening book, I'm not sure uh, which of you wrote about the uh, the trip to the haunted slaughterhouse. No, oh, that was that was Libby. <laughs> okay, t- t- was tell me. us. Yeah, tell us about this. Yes, um, I was intrigued to discover the haunted sl- slaughterhouse, which I think is a pretty good example of the kind of place which is extremely important to teenagers, but just about unknown to adults in a local area. Um, this haunted slaughterhouse was near the airport, and teenagers would go there and get in. It was partially closed, and they would take pictures of the bloody buckets and the tools, and they believed that the slaughterhouse was haunted by the ghosts of animals. And then later the building was rehabilitated and made into a whole different kind of place. It doesn't exist anymore, but for those who were teenagers at that time, it was intensely important. Hmm. Uh, so, Lynn McNeil, t- tell me about the Weeping Woman yes, Memorial. Our, this the, is Logan mm-hmm. Cemetery. Yep, this is right here up on campus. In fact, we are lucky as folklorists to have such an amazing legend trip site so accessible. I can walk my students over there when we, you know, take folklore classes and legend classes. Um, it's the Cronquist family plot. And if you've been in the Logan Cemetery, you will see it immediately. It visually stands out. It's the only... Um, structure statue of its kind. It's actually a a form known as a surrogate mourner. So it's a maybe nine feet tall um, statue of a woman sort of bent over mournfully with her head in her hand, um, looking sad on top of a big plinth that says Cronquist across the front. Um, And this is actually a common element of cemetery legend trip sites is that there will be a really striking visual strange thing in in the landscape that requires explanation. And that tends to be where the stories, you know, kind of gravitate towards in the Iowa City Cemetery. We have the Black Angel, for example, Mm -hmm. this one similarly strange and visually distinct statue that that the stories show up to explain. For ours, for the Weeping Woman, um, the story that gets told most often is that the woman, the story is told as though the statue is is the woman herself, um, had many, many children who died. And the explanation is either that they died in a horrible epidemic of sickness or in a much more sinister vein that she herself went mad and murdered all of them. And if you look at the graves that are that are around on the ground, you can see, as is unfortunately common for the time period, there are many, many children's graves, many of whom did not live very long. And then the legend continues that she um, 
herself died of grief upon the loss of her children, either realizing what she had done or simply, you know, at the cruelty of the world. So there's a there's almost a La Llorona quality to the story. And what, what she does now, if you go there at some ritual time, according to legend, it could be midnight, it could be the night of a full moon, it could be on Halloween, um, and stand around the statue and chant either weep woman weep or cry lady cry, she will, the statue will begin weeping, either tears or tears of blood. Um, and it's really, it's a very compelling legend because for a long time, the statue had really distinct sort of water stains on the face, which if you're a skeptic, you can say, yeah, the sprinklers come on every morning and the statue gets wet and that's where the water pools. Or if you're a believer, you can say, there it is. There's our evidence. Now, you talk about two experiences. It'd be interesting to contrast those with <laughs> the Weeping Woman. Mm-hmm. Right? One, uh, a folklore conference mm-hmm. where a bunch of folklorists go in the light of day. Yes, a safe o- time. Over <laughs> And then you had another experience, which is you recount this, the hair stands on the back of my neck. Yes, absolutely. Libby, do you want to talk about the the conference when we were all there? Uh, Sure, and then then you could talk about (laughs) yours if that's okay. Uh, Well, I vividly remember the conference. Um, All of us had made a pilgrimage to the site, which is a, a favorite legend trip site for folklorists who are in the vicinity, and we processed around the statue, and we were chanting, cry, lady, cry, and weep, lady, weep. And then we decided we would lift up the smallest member of our group of scholars, who was Kathy Preston. And so we lifted her up to see whether the statue was crying, and then we brought her back down. It didn't appear that the statue was crying, but all of us, I think, were just a little bit afraid that maybe she might start crying. And so it was a special experience for us. Yes, folklorists are definitely mm. folk also. <laughs> we do all the same things that everyone does. And anytime right. this legend society gets together, we always test out local legend yeah. tripping sites. Elizabeth Tucker, that's interesting. I think that would be my reaction. Um, you know, kind of hoping it didn't happen, but uh, it would be kind of cool and scary if it did happen, right? Exactly, yes. And there's, there's always that little bit of fear slash hope that maybe something amazing would happen. And I've had a couple of strange things happen in my life, not very many, but enough to make me hopeful that maybe I'll see more. So Lynn mm. McNeil, you had a you had a different experience <laughs> with the Weeping Woman. I've always visited the Weeping Woman during the day and felt fairly comfortably secure that nothing super weird was going to happen. But I went there one time at night. I had... Um, It was Halloween or the night before, and I'd been giving a lecture on ghost hunting at the Anthropology Museum on campus and had been demonstrating some ghost hunting apps about which Elizabeth Tucker writes in this book in a wonderful chapter. And the Folklore Club was meeting at the Weeping Woman to tell scary stories that night. So when my talk finished, I told my husband that I wanted to go see if they were still there in the cemetery at the Weeping Woman statue just to check in and see how it's going. So of course, it's totally dark out, you know, late fall, Um, a little bit drizzly. I was pretty sure no one was going to be there, but I thought we should check it out. So we went into the cemetery, um, pitch black, totally silent. We make our way to the weeping woman. Of course, the folklore club isn't there anymore. And we're just sort of standing around when my husband turns to me and says, hey, you have all those ghost hunting apps with you. You were just talking about them. Why don't you try one? So I turn on 
this one really great ghost hunting app called Ghost Vox. Um, and what it does is it sort of randomly generates little snippets of sound. And the idea is that it would work sort of like a Ouija board where, you know, if there's a something on the other side, they can take those little pieces and put them together like the letters of the alphabet on a Ouija board and arrange them into a message that we would be able to receive. And as I demonstrated it in the Anthropology Museum, nothing happened. And we talked about various things like the the process of pareidolia by which our brains want to make sense of sounds and images. And so we tend to read comprehensible things into abstract noises and sights. Well, we're standing there and this app is making noise. And all of a sudden, really clearly in a woman's voice, it says, you all should go. (laughs) And my husband heard it and I heard it. And we just looked up at each other and Turned around and left. I mean, there wasn't even discussion. It was just like, and we're out. (laughs) We're not going to stay here anymore. It was genuinely, genuinely terrifying. Yeah, that boy. If the ghost tells you to go, you go. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like, you know, thank you. Thank you, Weeping Woman, for letting us know whatever we avoided. I'm glad to have avoided it. Yeah. So that's, um, let's, um, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about, this will get us into and Lynn McNeil, you have a chapter on ghost hunting, mm-hmm. subtitle, Relationship Between Proof and Experience. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really important. And we'll hear more from Elizabeth Tucker. Um, Haunted Bridges, uh, House of the Blue Lights, uh, the Step Cemetery, the Big Tunnel. These are some places. Um, and Sub Basement. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to, to go mm-hmm. to go ghost hunting. Much more. The book is Legend Tripping, a contemporary legend casebook. Lynn McNeil and Elizabeth Tucker, the... Uh, Editors are with us. More following this break. UPR's Local Vietnam Reporting is made possible in part by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement, providing global learning opportunities at the Study Abroad Fair, Wednesday, September 25th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the USU Taggart Student Center. Details at studyabroad.usu.edu. Next time on Ask Me Another, actor Retta from Parks and Recreation details her feelings about playing the role of Ruby Hill on NBC's Good Girls. It was such a breath of fresh air for me to see a part where I wasn't playing a meter maid who had attitude and all she did was roll her neck. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about legend tripping. And a new book from uh, Utah State University Press, Legend Tripping, a Contemporary Legend Casebook, is edited by Lynn McNeil from Utah State University and Elizabeth Tucker, who is with uh, Binghamton University, the SUNY system. You're welcome to join this conversation, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I'd be interested to hear your story, maybe your ghost hunting story or mm-hmm. our experience with the with the supernatural. So Elizabeth Tucker, I guess one of the reasons for legend tripping is people do have an interest in trying to reach across the divide, right, to, to, to touch the supernatural. Definitely. People want to go to a place where it seems possible that they can experience something amazing, something frightening, something that they'll remember their whole lives. Um, so uh, I wonder, is there, Elizabeth Tucker, a, 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 you know, just there are many, many examples in the book. Uh, maybe choose another one that you've studied and tell us about it. Sure. Uh, well, uh, 
I have particularly enjoyed seeing how my students relate to the supernatural, and I've found over and over that they love going to haunted places, some of which are on our very own campus and others which are farther away. And um, there's you mentioned that you're interested in the sub-basement. We have some old residence halls that have basements beneath basements, and those seem like especially enticing haunted spaces. So students of mine have gone down to the sub-basements of some of the halls, and they've brought ghost hunting apps, such as the one that Lynn used at the Weeping Woman statue, and they've tried to get the apps to tell them what will be down there. And in my chapter, there's an app for that in the book. I write about how students got their ghost radar app to tell a story about somebody named Maria who had lived and died years ago because she got into a tragic situation with her boyfriend in July. Hmm. Uh, and you have some photos. I think this is from the sub-basement. Um, a, yes. A, a plug surrounded by soot <laughs> in mm-hmm. a haunted room. Uh, there's, a, there's an old-fashioned sink with a, with a stain. Right. And I, guess and I think it's, I think it's rust. I, you know, for the purpose of legend right. tripping, it would be nice to think it's something really sinister. Our university keeps all of its areas in excellent condition, so I, I think it's just rust or something like that. But it looks awful, and it makes a nice setting for legend trippers to <laughs> discover. Yeah. Uh, so, Lynn McNeil, um, the building where do you work in the Ray B. West building? That's the English department. I do indeed. So, your building has some yes, haunted I, elements. I think every floor at this point now has had a ghost story told about it. Our most popular one is um, the ghost of the fourth floor. That's where our graduate students work. We've clearly just you know sent them off to be in the most haunted place in our building. Um, And the stories usually involve a little boy who haunts that floor, stories where a student will be working late at night, um, will hear the noises of a child running up and down the hall or playing in one of my favorite stories. Um, Someone has been working at their desk, it's late, the doors open, and they can hear this child running around. They assume someone else is up there, maybe with with their son or daughter, and they see a ball roll past the door. And they keep watching, waiting for the child to come running after it. And no one ever comes, so they get up and they go out and look, and it's deserted. There's no one, no ball, no child, no other people, in fact. Um, That's, I think, my favorite story of Raby West. We also have a good, creepy girl who haunts the basement um, and a wonderful story about terrifying noises emanating from between floors. So a student on the third floor hearing really disturbing noises happening below her going down to the second floor and suddenly the noises are happening above her. Yeah, that's that's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, not a not a fun place to be yeah. <laughs> in after after dark. <laughs> uh, so this, uh, so uh, Lynn McNeil, you have a chapter in the book, ghost hunting, mm-hmm. relationship between proof and experience. Yeah, this is an idea that really intrigued me. This was a an article that I'd written several years before we we published this book, and we decided to include it in here. I think it gets at one of the really important ideas about legend tripping 
ghost hunting is not exactly the same as legend tripping. It's maybe a little more organized, a little bit more technological. Even when teenagers are going out with their smartphone apps, they're rarely bringing like Geiger counters and you know EMF meters and night vision goggles, though our phones can increasingly do all of those things for us. Um, but there's a real strong push in ghost hunting for objectivity and evidence and rationality. And when I interviewed a lot of ghost hunters who are all quite intelligent, rational people, um, there's a there's a strong desire for what we consider to be scientifically viable evidence, replicability, something that that you could actually show someone and say, here is evidence of this existing. But what I found was that as ghost hunters talk about their work, it was full of personal experience narratives, what folklorists would call memorates, sort of a, a first person legend, the story of what actually happened to me. And it became clear that there is a you you cannot ignore the draw of that what what religion and scholars and folklorists would call the numinous there is an enormous important part of ghost hunting even in the pursuit of rational objective evidence. And numinous is a, a term used by Rudolf Otto, who's a scholar of, of religion, to to distri- describe the non-rational part of of religious experience, the stuff that can't be sort of logicked away. And it's fascinating to see that no matter how much we might want to be objective and scientific and rationalist about this stuff, that lure of the numinous is an enormous part of what draws us to to these experiences and i and i think that's a good thing i don't think that's a thing that we should mm-hmm. that we should overlook Elizabeth Tucker, I wonder what you would say about this the relationship between proof and experience and and, and the reason why people go out uh, i guess some people go out looking for proof right but for others it is this the numinous right yes exactly i i certainly agree with what liz said what lynn said i think her chapters are a very important part of our book uh People, I think, who identify themselves as ghost hunters tend to be very interested in amassing much equipment. And I've seen ghost hunters at work, they're very serious. They're looking for proof in form of sound recordings and photographs and observations. Um, Ghost hunters, I I think, also care about evidence that comes to them, but they seem more intensely focused on their own personal experience and the kind of spiritual feeling that can come from a good legend trip, the feeling that you've gone through a kind of transformation in a way by witnessing something that seems to be deeply spiritual. I think that that there's actually a a wonderful thing that happens when those two things come together, my experience at The Weeping Woman, where the technology, the, the ghost hunting app, and and my own experience really together are what make that. If, if the legend didn't exist, it wouldn't have mattered. If there, if there weren't the story behind that particular place, then hearing, I mean, it might still have been creepy to hear words come out of this thing, but, but it's, it's really those two things coming together that I think makes for a good story. <laughs> So Elizabeth Tucker, you used the word transformation. That people are are looking for that experience of transformation. I wonder if you could expand on that. What are what are they looking for? Sure. Um, in saying that, uh, I'm drawing upon the work of sociologist Avery Gordon, who writes that being haunted involves a transformative experience, which brings to the person who is having this a kind of magical recognition of something wonderful 
that is all around. So, so it's a, a feeling of magic, a feeling of a realization that is not rational, but that is very important and that could provide important insight into a situation that needs to be better understood. For example, um, ghost experiences involving stories about ghosts of slaves or ghosts of Native Americans who were displaced or ghosts of women who suffered. Um, all of those kinds of stories are can involve that kind of transformative recognition. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. You mentioned this earlier, Lynn McNeil, La, La Llorona. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we women who suffer. Yeah, we we really process an amazing amount of incredibly relevant and incredibly, <clears throat> excuse me, important cultural ideas when we have these experiences and when we tell these stories. And I think one of the really most fascinating things about legend tripping is that it highlights how we can't be dismissive of things like this. Um, it's easy, I think, for a lot of people to be like, oh, those are just stories that just folklore, just legends. And what we see instead are these really significant, deeply embedded cultural and social themes that we are discussing and negotiating and not just speaking about, but acting on that sense of, I can engage the world physically in an embodied way and I can go somewhere and negotiate some of these topics. Uh, Elizabeth Tucker, how, how much of this is sort of rite of passage and the similarities and how much of it is sort of shared across the broader culture? I'm thinking about you, uh, included in the book, The Satanic Panic of the 1980s, which seemed to be the whole culture working through a fear. Yes, yes, that's an excellent question. The satanic panic is still with us in interesting ways, too. Some people still worry about the influence of Satan quite a bit. And I'm teaching early American literature right now, and one thing my class and I have been exploring has been just the pervasive influence of the Salem witch trials in 1692 and the work of Cotton Mather and other writers. There's people very, very worried about Satan's influence. And I think young people have an intense desire to understand what this is all about, to try to figure it all out. Older people do too, but life stage has a lot to do with it. At the time of Satanic Panic, for example, young mothers were very worried that their children might be vulnerable to some terrible deed of witches. That happened in Binghamton, New York, where I will keep it. People were keeping their kids home from school because they were afraid that witches would take them to a cemetery and kill them. And that was in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we get into the uh, 2010s, the clown panic. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was one of our, um, that was actually the winner of the digital trend of the year. and it is, we, we, we sort of see this ongoingly, this this sense that there's different things to be frightened of. Even more recently, um, the Momo Challenge uh, was something that sort of hit the news first in sort of a cell phone app context of there's there's a, someone out there, this creature, sort of this frightening bird woman who um, is encouraging young people to harm themselves. And then um, just a few months ago in February, a big scare on YouTube that someone was inserting these sort of self-harm encouragements using this Momo character into children's programming on YouTube, into episodes of Peppa Pig, for example. And it really is um, 
that the the panic is still with us, this sense that there's something out there that is attempting to harm not just us, but our most vulnerable people, our children, our, our most innocent population. Um, and I think Libby hit the nail on the head in saying that that there's a sort of a generational divide. You know, kids themselves might be you know, scared and also intrigued by stories of creatures um, like Momo or the the creepy clowns that are standing by the roadside. Parents are understandably uh, afraid of the people behind these movements saying, why would someone intentionally be out there trying to harm our children? Um, and I mean, we can see that going back to the the, you know, rock music scares that, you know, with secret satanic messages and music or that if you played an album backwards, you were going to get these messages that were going to, you know, subconsciously affect people's children. Um, so this is an ongoing theme. And I think it's very helpful to see it as an ongoing theme. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, uh, talk about uh, you know, how these legends are are circulated uh, in the wider culture. Of course, in in your town or in your group of friends, it's circulated by, hey, let's go visit so and you know, let's go visit the weeping woman. Uh, but Elizabeth Tucker, uh, it's interesting, you know, in the book you talk about legends versus fairy tales. Maybe that's the place to start. Legends versus fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Sure. In fairy tales, you tend to have identifiable good and evil characters, and you know that the ending is going to be okay, no matter how terrible things look for the hero. But in legends, there's more a sense of coming up against a world of unfamiliar and terrifying forces and having to make your way through it. Anyone can be a character in a legend. Legends are about things that happen to any of us, to people in any walk of life, people who may be quite good but just find themselves in a very challenging, very, very tough situation. Hmm. Yes, and I, I would add to that that with fairy tales, there's sort of a sense of, of fantasy and escapism where we hear stories that we would call fairy tales and we know they're not true. We, we know they're set once upon a time in a land far, far away. This is, this is not our neighborhood, our town you know, the the cemetery where we live, whereas legends are really grounded in the here and now and in questions of possibility. And that doesn't mean everyone believes them. Skeptics play an incredibly important role in that ongoing dialogue that legends promote, which is everyday people sitting around saying, what are the boundaries of possibility? Uh, so I want to talk a little about how legends are depicted in, you know, literature and, and film and, and television. Um so uh, I wonder just in in general, any, Elizabeth Tucker, any favorite, you know, personal favorites in, in for literature or, or film? Uh, well, oh, there, there are so many of them. Uh, oh, and one thing I should mention is that now that we have the Internet, we have a new kind of transmission of legends and other narrative forms that has become very prominent in the way that we communicate on this subject. One of my favorite films about haunted places is the Amityville Horror, which was made in two versions. It's about uh, the ghost that allegedly haunted an entire house in Amityville, New York, after a mass murder took place in the 1970s. And uh, this has huge power for people who live in the area. Every Halloween, there's a huge number of legend trips that co- trippers that come there, and the owners of the house have struggled to change the house's appearance, change the house's address, 
its number on the road, nothing helps. The kids always show up because they know that it's a very powerful place and they don't want to miss being there on Halloween. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a scary one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Lynn, you talked about a, a ball that uh, just, you know, bounces no one around, right? Mm-hmm. That reminded me of one of the scariest movies I've ever mm-hmm. seen, The Changeling. Oh, that's such a good movie. Or there, there's a, there's a, a, a little boy who yep. dies, I think dies in the is murdered in the bathtub mm-hmm. and at a certain point a uh, wet ball little ball bounces down the stairs yep you just just want to leave the theater at that point those striking yeah. images <laughs> i think are are one of the things that make these stories so intriguing is that they really they let us see the world in in a whole different way um and i think that films are especially catching on to the appeal of, of legends. We we have a whole genre now of found footage films. Um, the Blair Witch Project is an excellent example where people really left the theater saying, wait, was that real? Were there really teenagers who who were in the woods and trying to document this thing and, and who were gone? And and that that question of of reality and possibility certainly has been present in legends since there have been legends. Um but now we we get to play with that a little bit more and and the accessibility of recording technology video and audio recording that we can do with our cell phones gives us all new ways to explore that sort of stuff and now uh, there's a whole raft of ghost hunting shows on television. Yes, absolutely. Where we get to sort of go along with that, the the opportunities for legend tripping by proxy in a lot of ways um, have just exploded. We get to go along with people as they visit haunted spaces and we can watch through their technology with them and see if we glimpse anything or if we see something that, that they might miss. And we can do that through sort of the more, you know, institutionalized venue of television, but we can also just do it ourselves online with, you know, videos that get posted to social media. Elizabeth Tucker, this is, seems to be very much of a piece with our time, right? Uh, yeah. You know, instead of going there, we'll watch it. There's an intriguing question at the back of the book. Uh, what's the difference between watching a filmed legend trip uh, versus watching a scary movie? That's yes, an interesting that's, that's question. a very interesting question, isn't it? And um, different people would have different answers, I think. Uh, but I know that there have been some studies, some scholarly studies of how people react to scary movies, and it's found that the the responses, you know, the heart rate, the skin temperature, and all that, are very similar from watching a movie and actually going to a scary place. But I don't think it's quite as intense to watch a movie because you do know that you're in a safe place and that this is a vicarious thrill and you're pretty sure that nothing is going to jump out and get you. Although there's some blurring of those lines um, in movies about something coming out of the screen, movies even as old as Poltergeist where the little girl is watching the TV and she's sucked into this ghostly dimension and they don't know what to do. Yeah. I imagine you can get pretty close. For example, I made the mistake many years ago when my roommates were gone of uh, watching The Exorcist all alone with the <laughs> lights down. And I uh, was really glad when my roommates got home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just and I knew, you know, this is, nothing's going to reach through the screen to get me. But 
Yeah, but those that, fears are activated. Well, and the, that atmosphere, that sense of the non-rational, that sense of the numinous, is something that is really appealing in in a lot of ways. And I think too, with film and television, we have <clears throat> often, not always, but often, a fairly intentionally and artfully crafted experience. Whereas when a, a group of teenagers goes out legend tripping, there's no guarantee that that the plot will be resolved. And in fact, things are often left sort of wildly open ended. And there's debate about whether or not anything happened that, you know, was this a successful legend trip or not? Um, oftentimes, legend trips that involve driving, one of the, the key stories that gets told is that the car will die. There's a for, for those local listeners who don't know, there is a witch in Logan Canyon, which Hecata. And one of the local legend trips you can take is to go and try and summon her. You drive up the canyon. There are various different points you might visit. Um, and as the legend says, you stop your car and get out and put your car keys on the hood of the car. Um, and you say, which Hecata three times. And if you are successful, you'll see her coming by the green lantern light that she carries with her. And once you see that green lantern light, you need to get your keys off the hood of your car, get back in the car, start your car and get out of the canyon as fast as possible, <laughs> um, which makes it seem strange that you've summoned her at all. But th- there, it sort of goes back to that goal of proof or evidence, right? Most people who tell the story, the car doesn't start. Mm-hmm. And that is such a such a compelling and frightening thing to think of. I mean, it creates already a movie scene in your mind, this green light, you know, drifting closer and closer and you panicking in the car trying to get it to start. Um, and that is such a key element because that definitely counts as something happening, right? That that's that's something that that seems non-coincidental when when it occurs and that then feeds back into the legend. So the next time those same people or a, another group of teenagers heads up there they're going to share that story. Well, I heard that people came here and their car didn't start and and it becomes a part of the the narrated version of the legend as well. Hmm. Elizabeth Tucker um uh, are there elements of these legends that have stayed the same? You know, you go back in history, you go to now, you go to, from area to area, culture to culture. The elements of legend that have stayed the same? Yes, I, I, I think there are. Sometimes it's not easy to document those elements over long periods of time. But, for example, folklorist Bill Ellis has studied some of the newspaper records in England of teenagers back in the 19th century going to graveyards and sort of acting out and knocking tombstones around and doing rowdy things similar to what teenagers now might do if they go to graveyards on legend trips. And certainly um, legends about evil influences, the satanic panic, for example, that we were discussing, those are just as common and they're just as feared now as they were then. It's just that the evil influence takes a somewhat somewhat different form. For example, when I was studying the Blue Whale Challenge, which is an earlier version of the Momo legend that Lynn was talking about, I found that there's a subset of legends about evil people manipulating teenagers and trying to get them to commit suicide by giving them 50 terrible tasks culminating in suicide. There's a subset of those legends which states that Satan is the one who is actually bringing about the death of these vulnerable teenagers. And these legends circulate in some countries where there's a 
an Islamic version of Satan that is described as the source of this danger. And so depending upon where you are and what beliefs the people tend to cherish, the form of the legends is going to be somewhat different. Mm. Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, we have an email from uh, Glenn in the Ona Basin. Um, Disheartened skeptic is how he titles this, but he has some interesting uh, stories, scary stories from the Ona Basin. We'll read that, and we'll talk more about uh, legend tripping, a contemporary legend casebook. The editors are with us, uh, Lynn McNeil from Utah State University and Elizabeth Tucker uh, from Binghamton University in the SUNY system. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Bluff Arts Festival, October 17th through the 20th in Bluff, Utah, features artist-led workshops, an artist market, films, live music, food trucks, and more. Information online at bluffartsfestival.org. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop. From Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. We're talking about legend tripping on Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, legend tripping is where individuals or groups travel to a site where legend is thought to have uh, taken place. And uh, this uh, illustrates humanity's interest in the frontier between life and death, fascination with possibility of personal contact with supernatural or the spiritual. The editors of the book are with us, Lynn McNeil from Utah State University and Elizabeth Tucker with uh, Binghamton University in the SUNY system. Uh, this is uh, Glenn's email. As I mentioned before the break, uh, he titles this Disheartened Skeptic. Here's what Glenn says. Hello, I live in the Uana Basin in eastern Utah. We have some things related to today's subject that I would like to throw into the mix. There are lots of stories, ghost stories, including a headless horseman, skinwalkers, and haunted oil well locations. There are UFO stories and mutilated cattle stories. There are oil field workers who absolutely will not go anywhere near these places at night because of the potential ghosts or the possibility of an interaction with a UFO. I've tried to find ways to go to these places throughout my career in hopes of seeing a ghost or some t- something that can make me a believer. Uh, to this point, it's never happened. I continue to be a skeptic despite the fact that my own father claims to have seen ghosts or multiple in- on multiple instances. The same goes for the Skinwalker Ranch location here. It's been fenced off and protected from anyone but quote-unquote investigators and quote-unquote scientists who are quote-unquote doing research. I've been on the ranch numerous times before it was cordoned off. It was a close friend of mine who owned it and began reporting old odd sightings and events. This included uh, huge dogs or wolves, balls of light, and mutilated cows. Uh, he sold it to the current owners, uh, a supposed research group that wrote a book, I Did Not Witness Anything, uh, parenthetically still a skeptic. Finally, in the same vein, the Ona Basin has a significant number of UFO sightings. Junior Hicks, a former Uinta County educator, wrote a book about it called The Utah UFO Display. It's interesting, yet I still have, I yet have to, to see a UFO. I maintain my skepticism. Great stuff. Signed, a hopeless skeptic. That's Glenn <laughs> in the Uinta Basin. I'm right there with Glenn. I, I would love, on, on one level, absolute confirmation of, of any of these things. Um, 
I would I would love that that sort of clear cut understanding. But I think it's a much more common experience for people to feel as Glenn does, which is I I can't say for sure. I'm I'm going to remain a skeptic. I haven't had personal experience. I've heard other people, family members, friends talk about these things, and often even in a, a rational, thoughtful way. Um, but I think that 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 gets back to the the understanding of a legend as a conversation about possibility rather than just a long time ago legends were defined as stories told as true whereas fairy tales were you know stories told as fantasy um and now we understand legends much more discursively in a very nuanced way as these conversations which glenn is clearly taking part in Elizabeth Tucker, wonder what your thoughts here this this divide between skeptic and believer both are important to you know legends Oh, definitely. I I think that Linda Daig explained it well when she said that legend dialectics mandate that there have, has to be a believer and a skeptic and then a lot of people in between, and then this dialogue will continue in all sorts of intriguing ways. Um, Glenn's points about the UFOs and the haunted oil wells and skinwalkers are very, very interesting. I'd love to learn more about those. I know that Skinwalk or legends of the Navajo people are, are a very important part of folklore of the Southwest. And Margaret Brady did a study of children's stories of skinwalkers. It's very interesting. And people are terrified of skinwalkers. They're uh, a form of witch, a sort of ghostly witch, which is thought to be extremely dangerous, and you don't want to meet one of them when you're out on the road. Yeah, I haven't, haven't heard about skinwalkers, so these are a form of a ghost. Oh, this is yeah. a, a yes, a, a shape changer, often from um, akin to though not not exactly correlating with what we might understand as a werewolf. Um, one of the most popular skinwalker stories that gets told here, we have many many versions of it here in the Fife Folklore Archives um, at USU, is a story of a group of people who will be driving down the street, um, down the highway at, at night, um, in the Uinta Basin, and will drive past some sort of animal on the side of the road that they can't immediately identify. And when they look in the rearview mirror, they can see that the animal started running after the car, um, which seems very frightening and strange. And so they start driving faster and faster, and the animal continues gaining on them. So they're going 85, 90 miles an hour, and this thing is catching up to the car. And the story usually ends with them breaking 100 miles per hour or so and finally eventually leaving this thing behind. Um but there's often an implicit understanding that that creature was a skinwalker. Mm, wow. Uh, so, Glenn, I missed all of this. I grew up in the Ona Basin. Maybe this all happened after I left. But uh, uh, there's a bunch of stuff happening out in the Ona Basin there, apparently. Um, I did want to bring it up, Elizabeth Tucker and uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, something that I, I can't honestly say is, is destination for a legend trip, but I wouldn't be surprised. So uh, growing up in, in Vernal, um, there's a rest stop outside of town so as, as you uh, go through uh, kind of a little uh, not a canyon but some cuts and then uh, just as you uh, come out and you can see the valley below you there's a rest stop there and what i heard as a young man that there was somebody was murdered up there in that rest stop mm-hmm. and like i say i never participated and never heard of it but i wouldn't be surprised to hear now that teenagers perhaps would go to that rest stop you know Oh, oh or trip, you know. if you're me, avoid it. Or, or avoid, yes, <laughs> me too, me too. Definitely don't go to that rest stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing I would imagine, you know, that, uh, it, usually a place where mm-hmm. something bad 
has happened, and then that then the le- legend would take off from there. Yes, and I know both Libby and I keep quoting Linda Daig, who um, was Libby's mentor in in school, and is uh, was one of the most um, prolific and and well-known legend scholars um, in the history of our discipline. We keep quoting her. It's because she she has such amazing things to say. And she says, and and we quote this in the book, um, um, that the legend cannot be isolated as simple and coherent stories. So we're not talking about uh, a clean and tidy work of literature that has a beginning and a middle and an end and is summed up, you know, tidily and starts, it was a dark and stormy night. We're often talking about these little bits and pieces, exactly as you're, as you're describing, of rumor and idea and thought. And, hey, have you heard about that place? Yeah, I don't know what happened there. That might be the extent of it, but it creates sort of that atmosphere and that ambiance um, about that location that then allows other bits and pieces to be added in. Mm. Uh, Elizabeth Tucker, sometimes, uh, you write in the book, sometimes it's not the sense of fright or being scared, but it's a sense of wonder. And in, in the book, uh, you, you select a, a piece on the uh, San Antonio ghost tracks. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's Carl Lindahl's article, and I think he makes the point very eloquently that in some cases there's a fine line between legend trip and pilgrimage. He writes about what happens at the San Antonio train tracks where whole families, often of Hispanic origin, will come to the tracks and they will try to experience a visit from the ghosts of children who died in a wreck there. And it he compares this to the kind of religious awe that people might feel if they're on a pilgrimage to Lourdes or somewhere else where something of divine origin might happen, some sort of wondrous rescue or healing. This is not so different because it's coming together with something that makes you feel awed, awestruck, and amazed and fulfilled that you can visit a place where such an amazing thing happens. Well, one of my favorite passages in the book is the caption on a, a picture, I think the San Antonio Ghost Tracks. I don't know if it's the author of the article. Uh, he took his daughter out there, because uh, at least the, the person in the photograph said he, he, he would feel something. He wanted to see if his daughter did, and she did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. yes, that's a great illustration of, of the range of reactions and beliefs that people have. I think that it, when you're in a somewhat larger group, you may be a little more likely to feel such feelings because the energy rises in a group of people who visit a place together. But sometimes kids are going to say, well, no, Dad, I... I don't see it the way you do, and that's just just kind of the way it happens sometimes. Yeah, what I got from that very short caption was, uh, I think he was hoping she would feel something. And but, yeah. she, but she didn't. But, yes, and yeah. legend trips are experiences we we want to share with other people. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a, a common thing I know here at USU. Um, the graduate school has actually started taking um, prospective students and future students on a a legend tour of Cache Valley, and and that's such a a great way for people to gain an insider sense of of a landscape. I mean, you can take sort of the a formal tour of important buildings, but once you know a place's legends, you know that place. And once you have that sense of personal connection, that can be a really positive experience that you want to give to other people. 
We have another email from Steve. Steve says, back in the 1970s when I was a teenager living in Delaware, I had a girlfriend who lived in a house originally built in the late 1600s. The house was reputedly haunted, and Greta's mother, Greta is the girlfriend, claimed to have seen the ghost many times. I never saw the ghost, but the family had an English nanny who was a whiz with a Ouija board, and uh, with that board, we were we uh, communicated with often with the specter. At least so we thought. Mm-hmm. That's Steve. At least so we thought. At least I so love, we thought. Yes, I love that mm-hmm. tagline. Uh, so we just have uh, a couple of minutes left. So Elizabeth Tucker, um, what's your what's the takeaway you hope people take away from this discussion from the book Legend Tripping? Well, I I think that. We hope particularly that people will try some of the projects that we've suggested and think about some of the questions that we have at the end of the book and just and see what they think themselves about places in their local area and also what they think about the evolution of culture over time, how means of communication change and how some themes stay the same and, and others others change. Lynn McNeil, what's your hoped takeaway? I think that the the takeaway I would like to see um, most for people with this book is to perhaps take a little bit more seriously um, the study of legends. And I don't mean seriously in the sense of of the study of whether or not they are true, um, whether or not ghosts exist or, or Bigfoot is real, but the value of considering these things that are so easily trivialized in our culture. Um, you know, we like to champion the great works of literature by the great minds of our time. Um, when in fact, the stories being told by teenagers in rural America actually have an incredible amount of important things to teach us about the world today. And that's, I think that's my take home message is that, um, the overlooked parts of culture, the parts that we scoff at most easily, um, the interests of children, the interests of teenagers, um, and then and then stories about the supernatural or the irrational or the wondrous or the magical are actually really valuable touchstones for contemporary society. The book is Legend Tripping, a contemporary legend casebook. It's from USU Press. We've had with us Elizabeth Tucker from uh, Binghamton University in the SUNY system. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And Lynn McNeil from Utah State University, thanks. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.